You just heard my Christmas wish that our Lord God would be glorified with blessing and glory forevermore. Good news, I'm getting my Christmas wish. Whether we like it or not, He will be glorified. And it is wonderful to worship together with you at AIC. One of the great things about um, Christmas and Easter time at AIC is two things. When a lot of our regular people leave... And a lot of our long-termers have their family come in. So if this is one of the rare times I get to see you in any given year, welcome back to AIC. And those that are gone are missing out. We have just had a wonderful week together as a church family in all sorts of ways, seeing God work in expected ways, in unexpected ways. Uh, Some of you know, and I'm going to, I want to do something that I didn't warn them of, but there's a new married couple in our midst today, uh, Aries and Marianne Ansagai. Would you guys stand up? They were officially married Wednesday morning. And we are, we are thrilled to be their church family as they <laughs> look forward to life together and all that that might entail. We're also thrilled to continue on our series of what we call the Advent of the Unexpected, Extravagant Grace. When I moved to Hong Kong nine and a half years ago, we were given phone books. And there was two things that stuck out to me when I looked at, I lived over at Hoyat Hoyun. And when I looked at the phone book, one, I was amazed at how large each book was. We had the white pages and the yellow pages. I don't think you get them anymore. But when we first got here, they were still giving out phone books and wasting all that paper. And in that one, it was like, wow, a lot of people live just in my general area. There were so many businesses in Hong Kong. I was amazed. Then something else happened is I realized uh, something, that the letter C in family names had millions of people seemingly. It seemed like if, if you had a family name, a surname here in Hong Kong, it started with a C. There were Chans, there were Changs, there were Choys, there were Chus, there were Chungs, there were Chongs. I was so confused. I, was, I looked at Melissa and I said, how are we ever going to understand who's related to whom when everybody has the same family name? And I had no idea. I still don't. I do my best to get to know you personally and understand who's related to you and your family. But if I sat back and then I stepped back a second, I asked you to consider your family tree. What might we learn about our family trees? For instance, if I go to America and somebody asks me kind of what's my history, I would say, well, I'm American. They would understand that. And they would say, what else? And I would say, well, I'm kind of a Heinz 57. In other words, I have ethnic roots all over Europe. Uh, Most guess Irish. There's something that gives it away on me, apparently. Uh, But then I have quite a few others in there. German is is highly uh, popular, Scandinavian a little bit, and, and some other things in there. But one of the neat things about my family is there were a lot of really hard workers in my family. That's part of the legacy on both sides, on the Henderson side, on the Weimer and on the Rose side, all of these sides. There was lots of hard workers that came over to America and made something of their lives and grew together. And I admire that about my family. I have a strong family tree. I don't know much of it, but what I do, I'm impressed with. But it's not a royal family tree. Nobody's going to accuse me of having the right family lineage to be a president of the United States, to be a politician, 
to do much of anything of great note. I'm certainly not going to go into England and find out that secretly I'm the, the Duke of wherever, uh, York or somewhere else that I can think of. I don't know my UK geography very well. But I don't have, according to my natural bloodlines, this royal lineage. When we think about royal lineages, one of the things we love to think about is how unblemished they are, right? That's part of the rules of having royalty in your blood. That's why the French royalty had the big noses, because they wouldn't marry outside of their line. You laugh, but it's true, among other things that they had problems with. But these lines were supposed to be pure. So that when the royal heir was born, we knew that kid was royalty. Well, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to look at the royalty that followed Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. After all, it is Christmas Sunday. In just a few days, we will celebrate together Christmas Eve and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we do, I think it's important for us. I know you're like, you're excited. Mike, this is one of the two biggest sermons of the year and you're preaching on, the, on a genealogy? Yes, yes I am. And I'm excited to do so. Because I want you to look carefully for anything that seems out of place as I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, oh, said that one, Obed, uh, see, I'm all lost here. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel. Shelatiel Shelatiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Lord, we can often rush right over the great redemptive story you tell us through the genealogy of your son, Jesus Christ. 
But I ask that this morning we would pause and we would learn from just how miraculously you worked in the most unexpected and sometimes painful of circumstances. In your name I pray, amen. Well, quiz time. Did you notice anything that stuck out to you as I read those names? Other than the fact that that's a lot of names to pronounce that we don't use commonly today except for Jacob uh, and Joseph and a few others. Well, if you noticed and you were paying attention, before we get to Mary, there's a few women mentioned. As I introduced two weeks ago, uh, I said that our Advent series, with the exception of, Dr. Er, of Reverend Gardner's sermon, we were going to focus on some of the women that were connected with the birth of our Messiah. And so two weeks ago, I introduced you to Anna, a woman of great faith waiting for the Advent, the coming of the unexpected king in the most unexpected of ways. And God blessed her and allowed her to meet Jesus. And God used Simeon to proclaim how Jesus would bring the gospel not just to the people of Israel, but to all the Gentiles. Well, how did we know this was in God's plan? Pay attention to that genealogy I just read you. And look for two things. The character development of the men in the story, mostly. These were not good and upright men, by and large. There were a few exceptions, but by and large, Jesus' family line is pretty disappointing when we start thinking about it. Yes, there were men that were called men after God's own heart, but he wasn't so righteous. The Lion of Judah, we're going to talk about him today as well, but he made some judgment calls that are sketchy to say the least. Solomon, the wisest of all time, are you so wise if you have a thousand women to deal with? Maybe not. You guys are tired today. I know they're bad jokes, but it's Christmas. You should give me a little grace here, please. But you'll also notice something else. Four women are mentioned. Let me tell you about these four women because it's an interesting list. When I think about kingly reigns and kingly lines, man, I can't wait to tell you that there's two women of prostitution or rumored prostitution, uh, one of adultery, and the other was a Gentile from a Moabite clan. Not a single one. Yeah, they were all Gentiles, by the way. Not a single one of those women had a lot going for them in the normal sense. But today, it's Christmas, so I, wanna, I don't want to take too much of your time. But today, I want us to look very careful, carefully at the lives of Tamar, at the, lives of Rahab, of the, the life of Rahab, at the life of Ruth, and at the life of Bathsheba. Only one of them was given a whole book of the Bible, One of them, her faith was credited to her as righteousness. One of them gave birth to the wisest and richest man to ever live. And one of them taught the Lion of Judah a very painful lesson. And so let's start with her. Let's start with Tamar. You see, Tamar was married originally. Now, let's go back first. Let's talk about Judah. Judah, brother of Joseph 
finds himself being discussed in detail throughout the later section of the book of Genesis. How do I know that? Well, because it says so. But what we find out first is that Judah happens to help Joseph stay alive. Instead of killing him, it's Judah's idea uh, to suggest along with a couple of his brothers, let's keep him alive and just sell him and make money off the deal and get rid of him that way. So Judah is brought into already some deception. And then we get to Genesis chapter 38. Joseph, we're mid-narrative in the story of Joseph. All these things are happening. Joseph has found himself in prison. Then he's come out of prison and he's brought into the home of Potiphar. You remember Potiphar, whose wife tried to seduce Joseph. And Joseph responded righteously by running away from her and avoiding all appearance of evil. And that got him thrown back in prison because he did the right thing. But right before that, the chapter before, we read the account of Judah and Tamar. You see, Judah had a son. Judah also had a wife, but he'd done something against God's law. He married a wife that wasn't an Israelite. He married a wife from outside of his clan, and that was against the law. And he married a a woman that was a Gentile. That's what they were called then. That's what they're called today. And all of us, for the most part, would likely be Gentiles. But the problem was back then that Gentile practices, as they are today, were vastly different than God-fearing practices, correct? And in most cases, if you've been a parent, you, you say the same thing. You want friends and people around you that are good influences on your life, right? Because bad usually has more power than good. And if you hang out with bad people, what do you often become? Bad person. You know, that's what every parent tells their kid at some point in life, right? Well, in the case of Judah, he not only hung out with some disreputable people, he married one. Now, we, don't, we know very little of Judah's wife. She gave him sons, though. The first son did not follow in the ways of the Lord and did unrighteous things. And God killed him. That son was married to a woman named Tamar. Now, I need to talk to you about something called leveret marriage. What is leveret marriage? Well, let's put it like this. Let's say I am a young Israelite man. I've gotten married at about 16 years old to a beautiful young lady named Melissa. Theoretically. In, in so doing, uh, my brothers, I'm the eldest in my clan, and I have seven brothers. My mom was very blessed. Now, if you know, I have no brothers uh, in my family, but in this story, I do. And in so doing, unfortunately, because of, the, because of all the trips I've gone all over the place, I catch malaria, and I die. And I leave my beautiful, young, 15-year-old wife. Remember, people got young, got married young then. I leave her a widow with no sons. The name of my family would be no more. And so in leveret marriage, what was expected would be my younger brother would then be required to take Melissa as his wife. And the first son of their marriage union would be my kid. Huh? Yeah. True, I'm dead, but my name lives on. And we laugh and we chuckle because it doesn't make any sense to us today But that was the rules that kept a couple of things in check. One, it kept the lines of marriage pure. And by pure, I I don't mean from infidelity because go ahead and read the Bible. There's lots of that in there. But it kept the lines from allowing outsiders in and therefore adopting principles 
that were not righteous. It was in place to keep people moving toward God and families growing together, taking care of one another within their own social structure. But you bring in outsiders and a few things happen. They begin to take that differently. They begin to interpret it differently and say things don't matter. So I'm dead. My younger brother, Bob, marries Melissa, but doesn't want her to give birth to a kid that's not really going to be technically his and carry his name. So he does some things to make sure that doesn't happen. And he acts unrighteously and God sees that and judges Bob and kills him. Now, Melissa, an old woman at 20, um, finds herself in a difficult, precarious situation because the next younger son of my father, let's call him Judah, is quite young And Melissa would have to wait until this young boy grows up and and can help produce a son for her family and for her first husband. Leverett marriage was meant to protect against that or protect the widow from being unloved, uncared for, and cast out. There's one problem. Judah looked at Tamar and said, wait for my youngest. And then as the youngest grew, he ostracized Tamar. He put her out to the side and he cast her away and acted like he forgot about her. Tamar had nothing. She was humiliated. Widows were seen as very low in the class system. They were seen as outsiders, as castaways, as they weren't good enough. And she was stuck. She couldn't go find another husband because she was betrothed to another that was promised her. But Judah did not keep his word. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She hears that Judah's going to take a seven-mile walk and go to the next village up a, a little bit north. So she races. She dresses herself up in a disguise. Depending on which translation you take, some say that she was dressed like a Gentile prostitute of a of, of false god's prostitute that would stand outside the worship area and sleep with men as a religious practice, which was highly done in that day. It was not right. Please don't misunderstand as we look at these family lines. Just because God used the situation doesn't mean he condoned the behavior that went with them. But God can take beauty from the most broken situations. And so Tamar puts a veil over her head and she stands outside the area of the gate and Judah comes in. Maybe it's hot. Maybe it's been a long time, but for whatever reason, he decides he wants to proposition a harlot, a prostitute. And she says, well, what sign will you give me that you're going to pay me for my services due? This is a business transaction. That's how he treats it, and that's how she seemingly treats it. He says, well, I'll give you a goat, a kid. Not a child, but a a, a kid. And she says, no, you got to give me more, because anybody can promise one of those. And so he takes a few things that would very clearly identify him. It's the equivalent of day of pulling out his wallet and saying, here... Don't hang on to my coffee card, but hang on to my Hong Kong ID. And when I pay you, you give that back. 
We do it all the time. If you go to look at a new flat today, you always have to show your ID to get into the building to make sure you're not going to go rob somebody else and all those things. Well, that was essentially what Judah did. He gave his chop, his ID, his walking stick that would have had his carvings on it. He gives it all to Tamar, not knowing that's Tamar. And he gets her pregnant. Three months later, word comes back to Judah, the lion of Judah, the great leader of his clan in in, in the minds of many. And he hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And ah, suddenly Judah's righteousness comes back to him because he's off the hook, he thinks. Because guess what? Adulterous relationships like the one that Tamar would have had to have been in because he didn't give her his son yet at all. So she slept with someone outside the bounds of leveret marriage and therefore was an adulteress and therefore was destined to be stoned, murdered, killed for her transactions. Judah, I'm pretty sure, is thinking to himself, Woohoo! I'm off the hook. I don't have to give my youngest son because this lady is a black widow. She is killing my kids. He's not thinking of their righteousness or lack thereof. He wants his family line. He wants his sons not to keep dying. And so he says, bring her out and burn her. He doesn't even say stone her. He says, burn her. And so she's brought out. And as she's brought out, she sends word to the clan leaders saying, oh, could you let me know whose things these are so that I can return them? Instantly, Judah realizes a whole lot of things. One, the, the proverbial idiom in English, his hand is caught in the cookie jar. He was doing something he was not supposed to do. First, the first thing he'd done, he married outside of Israel. That was sinful. Two, he allowed his kids to follow his behavior and practice and not fathered them in the way that was pointing them to the glory of God. Three, he went up and sought out an adulterous relationship in the form of prostitution. Four, he did not keep his word to provide a husband for Judah or for Tamar. And so she took matters into her own hands. And he looks at her and he says, she is more righteous than I am. And out of her, from the very seed of Judah himself, are born two sons. The oldest son reaches his hand out. And they tied to Mark, because they were twins, they tied to Mark a a rope around to say, that one's first. And it stucks back in and he says, I'm not ready to come out into the world yet. And Perez comes out first. And yet again, as the story unfolds, we see that the younger brother is elevated to a higher level as Jacob even did with Joseph's sons from the north. And in this case... God used a cast-aside woman to carry on the very line of Judah. Could he have done it differently? Did Tamar need to act in the way she did? No, she did not. Adultery is still adultery. Don't misunderstand the point of the story. The point of the story that God brings as we see each one of these women that were poorly treated is that God continues to work in spite of the brokenness of the world. God can redeem situations that seem hopeless and bring people back to themselves, back to himself. 
Judah was seemingly transformed, seemingly realized that his life was not in accordance with the law of God because as you get later on, we are reintroduced to Joseph and his brothers, chapter 44 of Genesis. And in that chapter, what we read is that it is Judah saying to his dad, if anything happens to your baby son, not a, not a baby at this point. Benjamin is who he's talking about. He says, it's on me. It's my life. I will protect him. I will care for him. I will treat him with the honor that's due. And if I don't bring him back alive, you can kill me. He re-engages with a life of honor that's due to God and to his family name, carrying out the legacy. This is the same guy that acted so unrighteously up to that point. And God used a woman that the world had cast aside. She had gone home to her clan in shame. She'd been cast out of Judah's family. She acted deceitfully, yet God used that to carry on the very line of the Messiah. So that's one. God used a situation like Judah and Tamar and brought glory out of that? Yes, he did. Do I understand why he chose to do it that way? No. And thousands and thousands and thousands of pages have been written trying to understand exactly what God was thinking. Well, here you go. Here's what I believe God is teaching us through this. This world is broken. There's no one righteous, no, not one. As long as we are in this world, we will make foolish decisions outside of God's will. But he can use those decisions and redeem them, drawing people back to himself. He deals with our sin for us through Jesus Christ. But he says you don't have to be identified by the sins of your past. There is grace, there is redemption, and there is hope, even for someone like Tamar. Could she have done it another way? I believe so. But God used that scenario to carry on the very line of Jesus. That's one. Not so long after. Oh, and by the way, you can also see God's sovereignty in bringing the people of Israel into a place of slavery in Egypt because you know what uh, Egypt did not allow? Intermarriage. The Israelite people were kept as God's chosen people because they were so segregated from every bit of the rest of Egypt in that time and in that day and in that age. And their tribe and their clan and their purity grew as God's people even though they were in slavery. It's amazing how God continues to work out his plans for his glory even in the worst of situations, isn't it? And so you move ahead. God is ready to free his people from the bonds of slavery of Egypt. He's led them across the Red Sea. He's led them across the Jordan River. They have said goodbye to their faithful, most of the time, leader. Again, even Moses made his share of mistakes. And they are ready to go take Jericho and the promised land. And everything is ready. Joshua just needs to do something. He needs to send two spies to check out the land and see what's going on. And so if you flip over in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, you come up to a story of the next lady in the line of Jesus that's mentioned. And again, 
She's not a woman that we would normally think, wow, that's a great, 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 great grandmother for Jesus. We think, huh? Well, let me tell you the story briefly. I'll speed each story up a little bit as they become more familiar. In this story, in this narrative, the spies go in, they have to hide. They're being sought out. They're being looked for. And so they find a place to hide and they're welcomed in to a prostitute's home. Some people have tried to say that they went in and they paid the prostitute and they slept with her. There is no indication of that in the text whatsoever. In fact, there's indication to say the exact opposite, that Rahab, the prostitute on that part of the the wall of the great city that was to be the promised land, well, this Rahab feared God. She had heard about what God was doing to the peoples around as they had made their way forward. And she feared him. And when she saw those two spies coming, she feared God more than she feared man. And she brought them into her home and she protected them. How do I know this? Well, look in your Bibles to what she said. The woman had taken the men. Yes, they came to me. She says, and then interestingly, Again, God is sovereign even when we act in ways that are not the most pleasing to him. Could God have protected the spies without her lie? Absolutely. But God also redeemed the situation, not because Rahab told a lie, which she did, but she feared the Lord and she protected God's people. She let them down by a rope and they lived. And then when they came to take the promised land, what are we told of Rahab? She was told to tie a rope outside and no one would lay a hand on her or her family. And then we get all the way to the end of the story, to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what do we read? But Rahab was the father of this guy. One of the rare ones that we read, a stand-up man named Boaz. Wait a minute. Rahab, a prostitute, a woman who her life's work is defiling other people. Yes. God redeemed her. She feared him. And she gives birth to a son that we can read a lot about in the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we find out that this man seems to carry himself with a level of integrity and honor that is not normal in the day or normal for the tribe of Israel. And this man, Boaz, carries himself with such honor that instead of giving in to trickery and deceit, when a godly woman of a Moabite tribe that had been widowed by one of his relatives gave him the chance to buy the land, the property, and the right to marry her. He took it as an act of continuing the family line and an act of love and of honor. And that woman's name was Ruth. There's a book of a Bible named after her because when her mom lost everything in Moab. She shouldn't have been there in the first place. Again, broken situations that God can redeem. She married an outsider who died 
the sons died. Ruth looks at her mom and says, your people, they're my people now. I got nothing, but I'm going with you. She says that to her mother-in-law. Ladies, be honest with yourself. How many of you like your mother-in-laws that much? I'm serious. (laughs) Most of us like our mother-in-laws for a time. But to say that I'm going with you no matter where you go, even though we have no direct family relation anymore, that's a move only ordained by God. And in so doing, Ruth follows her mother-in-law back into the land of Israel. But Naomi can't give her anything. There's nothing. She's like, I've got nothing. I'm not allowed access to anything. I've got... I'm. I'm the least of these. But Ruth sticks with her. And a man sees her named Boaz as she's walking through the fields. Basically, Ruth's job for her mother-in-law was to go into the fields and pick up the scraps of grain that were dropped. Whatever threshing season it was, she would go behind and like a beggar, pick up whatever's dropped on the ground. But we see no indication that she ever did so begrudgingly. Everything we read seems to indicate she did it willingly. That she did it with love and with a desire to honor her mother-in-law. And in so doing, Boaz takes notice of her. And at first, it's just kind of like an older brother kind of thing, seemingly, where he says, hey, make sure you accidentally drop some extra grain on the floor so she can come behind and pick it up. And he begins to provide for the family in that way. Isn't it interesting how we can often see God provide for us in ways we don't think are possible, right, or necessary? Yet as we look at the grand narrative of God's story throughout history, we see time and again he's a surprising God of the advent of the unexpected. And so eventually, Ruth's mother-in-law realizes that, hey, this guy Boaz can be your kinsman redeemer. Not only was leveret marriage a thing, but there's also this thing called kinsman redeemership. In other words, same concept, to keep the family line going, to keep the property in the family, you could buy not only the land, but the spouse. It sounds weird and archaic to us today. But if you look at some of your family lines, especially in this part of the world, in Asia, similar practices were done here to keep your names going throughout history. Because let's be honest, many people in Asia have far longer family lines than the Rose name. In fact, our name is actually Rosa. You can only uh, go back about 300 years tops. Some of you probably have family lines that you could go back a thousand years. That comes through this idea of protecting that line. And one of the ways you could do that was through this idea of kinsman redeemer. Now, there was a, cl- there was a hitch in the plan. Because if you think about it in the romantic setting, at this point in the story of Ruth, we see she likes him, he likes her. Things look pretty good. And they could have just gone on ahead and acted unrighteously as often happened. But Boaz looked at Ruth and he says, I am interested in being your kinsman redeemer. Wow. 
After all these years, God is taking care of Ruth and her family. Did she deserve it? No. But God's grace was being bestowed upon her. But there was a problem. There was one man closer in line that could buy the property and redeem Ruth's name and the family. So Boaz, interestingly, why he did it this way, I don't know. But he goes up to this relative and he says, hey, the land of such and such, I'm not giving you all the names because you won't remember them. Read them, they're in Ruth. He says, the land of such and such is available for you to be the kinsman redeemer of. You want it? He's like, yep, I'll take it. Oh yeah, there's one more thing. You got to take Ruth too. Oh, um, look at the time. Got to go. See ya. And in so doing, that man then, in an act of a transaction of the day, and I know, where's Mike going with all this? Takes off his sandal and says, I revoke my right to redeem Ruth and the land. Okay? Boaz then throws his sandal in the mix and the transaction is done. And from the line of Judah and Tamar, out of the family of Rahab the prostitute, comes a son named Boaz and a wife named Ruth. Two generations on, Obed was born. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David was the youngest son of a family of big, strong, good-looking men, all of whom Samuel thought would be the right king of Israel. But while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And from Boaz and Ruth to Ahab, Obed, not Ahab, Obed to Jesse to David, the royal line of the Messiah continued in the most unexpected ways. Three women so far. One protected from injustice by the sovereignty of God. One protected from destruction by the great mercy of God. One protected from isolation of being an outsider from the great love of God. And then there's a fourth that's mentioned in the lineage that Matthew teaches us about who's not even mentioned by name. But we all know who she is because she's the one of the story that we've probably heard the most. You see, it was the time of year when kings went off to battle. Springtime. It was a good time for fighting. So remember that if you need to go to war. The thing was, kings were supposed to lead their people into battle. They were not supposed to leave it to their generals. Abner was not, or any of the generals that David had, was not to be the one taking his people at war. David, the king, the anointed ruler of God's chosen people, was to be the one to take his people into battle. Well, in a dereliction of duty, that's what we call it in military speak, in a dereliction of duty, David stays home. And it's hot. So he goes up. He's in a temple or in a palace home not a temple. He's in a palace home that would have largely sat above all the other homes in the area where the breeze would have been better and he would have been looking down at everyone. He is the ruler. Look at me. And in so doing, he notices a woman taking a bath. I'm not going to paint you more of a picture than that, but he notices her. 
And he has thoughts about her that are neither appropriate nor righteous. And he acts upon those thoughts. And even his advisor tries to tell him, isn't that the daughter of one of your other advisors, likely a Gentile himself, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, David had these mighty men. In, in movies today, we love talking about these special forces units. Uh, in America, we have our Navy SEALs, our Green Berets, our special ops guys, black ops guys, all these things. In the UK, they are called... SAS, thank you. They're, in other places, they're named different things. But these are the best of the best. These are the guys that go into the worst situations and come out winning. They're the ones you want looking out for you. They are loyal to you. They're taking care of you. They're fearless leader. And they're doing the dirty work that has to be done for the glory of God in David's case. Well, David sees the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And he says, I got to have her. So he calls her up. They sleep together. And he makes her pregnant. He impregnates her. David finds himself in a mess. We're told very little of Bathsheba's role in this, but she gives birth to a son. And in the process, David has Uriah the Hittite killed. David has become in one fell swoop of one seriously bad decisions, an adulterer, a murderer, and just an all-around bad guy. And Nathan the prophet is charged to call him on it. But in so doing, David falls on his knees and cries out to the Lord, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. I have sinned and I'm broken. In whatever place, part Bathsheba played in the story, God allows the story to continue. Solomon is born. And he becomes the king of Israel. And Solomon leads the people, but he again makes mistakes that follow after his dad. And even though David had repented, he'd lost greatly. There'd been much suffering personally. But he got up and he continued and he tried to lead David on with the birth of the son that God said would be provided. And Bathsheba was chosen to be part of the family line of the Messiah. She suffered great pain. She lost a son. She lost a husband. She lost her dignity. But yet in all of those things, God used her to carry on the name of the Lord. Why, why, why would God use four Gentile women to carry on the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Why not keep it so spotlessly clean that it could not be contested? I think the reason is quite simple. Because if you look at God's redemptive story, you see a few things that come out time and again. Oops. The first thing we see is the world is full of brokenness. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, darkness came into the world. And the work of sin is all around. 
and we often get ahead of God's plan for our lives and it messes things up. There are relationships broken. Adultery happens more than we'd like to admit. Sin is all around us. We're told throughout the scriptures, there's no one righteous, no, not one. But the other thing we realize is that God is bigger than our brokenness. Can you imagine what it was like to be Tamar, knowing that you'd been betrayed, knowing that you'd been cast aside as no longer worthy of the family name and you've had nothing? Can you imagine being Rahab thinking, I know there's a big God out there and what little I know of him, I know we're in trouble. What do I do? Can you imagine being Ruth, knowing that you're going to come back with your mother-in-law, but knowing in all realities there's no hope for you. There's nothing for you. Can you imagine the shame of Bathsheba, having been a part of an adulterous, murderous relationship, losing a child, but knowing that God is still at work? Because God's plan is bigger than our brokenness. God can lift us out of the ashes and use us in spite of our past. We see that in these. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 3. He says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why do I believe it was so important for God to bring in Gentile women that had broken lives to be part of his story? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God's plan for all people was to bring forth a Messiah, including the Gentiles. Go over to Luke chapter 3 and read Simeon's prophetic word that was a repeat of the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be for all people including the Gentiles. And God used redemptive stories of brokenness, of turning away, and he brought these women back. And he loved them, and he used them to bring glory to his own name. We can't say they deserved something great. We can only say that God worked through them, that it was all God at work. And in bringing us a Messiah, he's bringing us hope that whatever our situations are, He can redeem, he can restore, and he can refine us. We look at the life of Rahab and she went from as far as we can tell from a prostitute to a godly, God-fearing woman that raised a man like Boaz. Think about that for a second. Isn't that amazing? God can change a life. Not so long ago, I was in Kolkata, India, and I got to meet women that had been sold into sexual slavery yet had come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we're making a difference for his kingdom, not holding on to bitterness from their past, but seeking to make a life of what God was providing for them now. Their past was not defining who they were becoming in Christ. They'd been washed by the blood of the lamb and they had been set free. They had been abused horribly, but their hope is in Jesus Christ. And we got to meet some of those women and think, wow. You see, not only is the world broken, but God is bigger than the brokenness. And he's got a plan for those that love him. He's got a plan for all people. 
We know that he is sovereign, that he is working out all things together for the good of those who love him. He can work it out. Now, what happens is we try to do things in our own plan and God allows us to read time and again in this book how people trust God, but then go and do it their own ways. There are literally thousands of examples in these pages of people running ahead of God and God doing what? Redeeming the situation of brokenness and bringing people back to himself. And there is no better picture of that than the family line of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, how he then lived his human life, died, offered himself as a propitiation, a payment for our sin, rose victoriously and says, come, enjoy a relationship with me for all eternity. How do I know that? Well, what then can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is so for us that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he uses people like Rahab. He uses people like Tamar, broken as they were, associated with even worse men. Men, we don't come out looking great in a lot of the Bible. But it should be a conviction to us that God can draw us to himself. Women, you may have been treated badly. There may be such bitterness and hurt and abuse in your life. And men, this can happen to you as well, that we don't know how to let go of it. But the last thing we see about God is his plan for redemption has never stopped from the very beginning of all creation to the last day, man, in Revelation. God is at work bringing people back to himself for his glory and for his name's sake. Listen to what the Apostle Paul reminds us. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? God is at at work of redeeming even the most broken situations, not just to heal us, but to bring glory to himself. This Christmas season, I pray that it will be a time of family and of fellowship and of fun and of gifts and of joy and all those things. But I pray that even more, it will be a time of redemption. Maybe for you personally, you feel like you can't give God all of your life because you've made too many mistakes and he couldn't possibly want you. He wanted Rahab. He wanted an adulterer like David who was known as a man after his own heart. And he used people like that to bring glory to himself. He can certainly use you. There's a man in the 1960s and 70s named Charles Colson. Charles Colson was at the top of his game. Brilliant mind, successful military man in the United States of America, the fastest ever to get to a certain rank in the Marines, which were the toughest of the tough. He was a brilliant, ruthless politician, and he had his sights set on one thing, power in American politics. And he was so good at it that he got it. It cost him his first marriage, but he kept pressing forward. He didn't look back. So much so that he got the ear of a man 
a man named Richard Nixon. He became Richard Nixon's one of one of Richard Nixon's most trusted advisors. He was instrumental in getting Richard Nixon re-elected to be president of the United States of America. All of this may or may not be news to you, but the thing most of you know, even if you don't follow American politics, is Richard Nixon was our first and only president to ever have to resign because he would have been impeached and fired because his conduct was so unbecoming of any leader of an American. But the man behind Richard Nixon that orchestrated so much of it was this guy, Charles Colson. Charles Colson helped do some deviously terrible things. But as the journey continued, Charles Colson was introduced to a man that introduced him to Jesus Christ. And Charles Colson's life began to change at the exact time the Watergate tapes were released and all of the information came out on Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon has now resigned. Charles Colson is one of those that is called to trial, being tried for actions of essentially treason against America. He enters a plea bargain and he's sentenced to a, a certain amount of time in prison. And as he comes out of prison, listen or as he goes out of the sentencing. He hasn't even gone to prison yet. But listen to what this man, who now knows exactly what he has done, was wrong. Listen to what he has to say. It was a harsh sentence, further, harder than most expected. What happened in court today, Chuck Colson said, was the court's will and the Lord's will. I have committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I can work for him in prison as well as out. Interestingly, Charles Colson went into prison and continued to follow the Lord, knowing full well he had sinned. He had broken man's law and God's law, and he was taking responsibility for it. He wasn't asking for a free pass, but he'd been given a new pass on life. He'd been given a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And while in prison, he did everything in his power to tell as many people he could as possible about the wonderful glory of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Fast forward a few years, Charles Colson is released from prison, having led many of his fellow inmates to Jesus Christ, being known as a man of great wisdom and love and compassion and great brilliance. Charles Colson comes back into the real world, no longer an attorney, no longer a politician, but is following the Lord wholeheartedly and joins with others in starting a thing called Prison Fellowship. Prison Fellowship began a legacy of going into prisons and telling inmates about the love of Jesus Christ. In the year 1990, over 40,000 people were involved in prison ministries all over the world. Why? Because while Charles Colson's life was broken, while Charles Colson's life was full of deceit, despair, and despicable acts, God brought a broken man back to himself. That broken man said, Here I am. I'm yours. I'll go where you want me to go. And he followed the Lord. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, inmates, the least of these, have been introduced to the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. And the cycle continues. 
Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Charles Colson, even St. Nicholas himself. What little we know of the real St. Nick. Interestingly, the one story that most say, tradition or not, they believe it's to be true, is that he lost his parents at a very young age and that that could have defined him. But instead, he was known as a man of tremendous generosity, trying to follow the pattern his parents had set before him of selling all he could and giving it all away to the poor. That much we know of St. Nicholas of Mira's legacy. The rest, a lot of it's more folklore than truth. But he was a man of great generosity because God got a hold of his life. He was named bishop without having gone through all the right circles. God used him. What about us? Are we inviting others into the redemptive story of God? Are we holding people at arm's length because they've hurt us? Because a lot of people don't deserve our grace if we look from human terms. But God redeemed people like Tamar, like Judah, like David, like Rahab, like Bathsheba, like Charles, like Mike. And he invites us into his story and he says, bring others with you. So maybe there's a relationship that's broken in your world today that you need to go and offer grace, extravagant grace that God has shown forth throughout. God is not just a God of grace in the New Testament, but in the whole word of God as I've shown you today. Maybe on the other hand, your life has been so marked by decisions that you wish you could take back that you think there's no way God could ever use you. But God, in his infinite justice and in his gracious mercy, says, I love you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You don't have to be identified by your mistakes. You can be set free knowing Jesus Christ has already paid your debt and he's invited you to live freely for all eternity. So wherever you find yourselves this Christmas season, may it be a season that reflects on all of the story of Jesus from the first page until the last, seeing that God can work in spite of brokenness, that his story is one of redemption for you and me. And may we offer that extravagant grace to our neighbors, to our family, and to those in every aspect of our life. Let's pray. Lord, you gave us Jesus. You gave hope to some women that had been so abused by men and others in their lives that they probably thought there was no hope. But you restored and you used these Gentile women. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you've adopted us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that you've adopted us into your family. May we not just be acceptors of your great grace, but may we give it away because you've given it to us. In your name I pray, amen.